Hey, St. Paul, welcome to our podcast on uh, Brennan Manning's book, The Ragamuffin Gospel. Tommy and I have been walking through, at least at this point, up to this point, the first five chapters of this book. And uh, today we're going to uh, uh, dive into chapter six of this book. And, and mainly the format is discussion. We, we talk about those parts of the chapter that stick out to us, those parts of the chapter that um, kind of uh, gravitate to our hearts and speak to us. And so today, uh, Tommy and I will, will jump in. And first of all, it is important for me to say we're so grateful that you're joining us today, that there, that whether you're joining us on our website or Amazon or Stitcher or Spotify or iTunes, we're glad that you're with us today. Tommy, tell me one of the things that jumps out to you in this chapter. You, you were mentioning before uh, we were recording that your devotions today were centered around uh, John 14 and 15, that farewell discourse was with Jesus uh, and his disciples in the upper room. Would love to hear your input of, of that and the, um, the chapter. Uh, John, thank you. Uh, 14 is really focused on uh, Jesus speaking with the disciples and telling them that he's going to he's going away and he's going to leave them with an advocate the holy spirit right now the basis of this and we have to put ourselves in this position of the disciples we have this guy that we've been following for 3 years the Messiah, and he has taught us so much about not only life, but how to live life and how to take his message after he's gone to the world. So how would you feel if somebody like that just said, okay, Tommy and John, I'm leaving you with no real explanation why he's leaving you? But I'm going away. And Tommy, could you imagine, okay, here we are. Let's say we're in the upper room and we hear Jesus say, I'm leaving. But then he says, it's good for you, for you that I go. And I could imagine me turning to you, Tommy, and nudging you and saying, wait a minute. Did I just hear what I thought I heard? How many of them would rather at that point say, no, 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 no. We would rather you be here with us. We would rather you be here with us, not go. And they had no idea of the significance of the kingdom. Of course, they soon learned that. That is absolutely true and amazing. Yes. And just just experience the anxiety of, of him leaving you and telling you that it's good for you that I leave. And it, it's kind of like the a child. Once they get to a certain stage in life, we say, okay, you're free. We're not, we're not, you're on your own now, but you can always come to us. And to put the disciples in that position, I can imagine the anxiety and the hesitation about accepting the fact that he's leaving. Now, he does. And we go into chapter 15, which is a wonderful chapter of Jesus explaining to us about the vine and how he 
prunes us just like we would prune a, a hedge or anything like that, pruning away the, the good stuff where it can grow into something even better. As long as we abide in the vine, as long as we are grafted to Jesus, then we bear fruit, and that fruit is, is good fruit. And that fruit manifests itself in, in the world as we communicate and interact with uh, people. And that, to me, is a wonderful example of being in Jesus. One of the things that just really stepped out to me in this is why not live our lives as, as dearly loved and cherished by Jesus? And we can't do that if, we do, if we're not grafted to him. If we don't acknowledge that he loves us just like we are. And going into the first page of this chapter, that, that first two or three paragraphs is significant in showing how love and acceptance, the essence of love and acceptance. And, and really what, it, what he starts out is this doctor is performing this operation on this young lady and he on her face and he accidentally or probably has to cut a nerve that causes her her mouth to be deformed, her actually her facial features to be deformed. And the doctor is amazed because he watches her young husband come into the room and obviously you can expect a woman that's face is disfigured now, even though it was necessary. And she says, will I always be like this? And the doctor replies, yes, you will, because I had to cut the nerve. The next scene is the young husband says, I like it. I like it. And he bends down and contorts his lips to match hers and gives her a kiss. And this blows the doctor away. I've never seen anything like this. That's how Jesus use us. Whatever it is that we are, he loves us and he accepts us just as we are. That just blew me away when I read that, what that young husband says, I like it. We have heard about the cross and the passion that Jesus has uh, gone through. And over the years, we have theologized it in such a way that it has lost its, its reality. It's lost. It's become pretty. It's become something that is not disturbing. A cross, a crucifixion should be very disturbing. And then in the sense of Jesus um, carrying and Every sin, every cancer, every bone disease, every addiction, every sin, even further pushes it to the edge of the ugliness of what Jesus went through for us. That we have lost the significance of our response to the cross. What is our response to the cross? Brennan Manning goes into, in this chapter, several responses that we should have, but I can't help but think on how it has been, how it has been sold over the years, 
How has Christianity been sold? How do people, organizations, churches sell this Jesus? And to dovetail to what you just said, how we evangelize and how we tell the story, Brennan Manning comes to the end of his chapter and says, to evangelize is to simply say that the other person is truly loved and accepted by God also. It is not anything more than that. At least that becomes the first step. And so when we start to realize that we are truly loved and we are truly accepted by God, we are still a little squeamish uh, around this love. What are the responses? What are the responses that he, he taps into? John, I think there are three in Let's, let's walk through those uh, step by step and focus on them as we go through. And I step, step number one is we acknowledge and accept the invitation and the initiative to follow Christ. Manning is, is really focusing on, and I didn't realize this, he's talking about the crisis parables right, that Jesus right. uh, taught. And when we, when we say crisis, we say, oh, my gosh, what does that mean? Well, what he's saying is don't procrastinate. Right. Why are you waiting? There's an invitation. There's an invitation that calls for a response. response. Yeah. And that's what these crisis parables do. That's right. And a couple of authors says a warning to repent. A tidal wave is coming, and you are lollygagging on the patio having a party. You are feasting and dancing on the volcano, which may erupt at any moment. And then he goes into the wedding feast. Right. So the point is, what are we waiting for? We have been offered through the cross. We've been justified. Our sins have been paid for. Why do we why do we hold on to them? Why do you think people miss out on the urgency? I'm not just talking about people receiving this, but why do proclaimers, preachers, ministers hold back on the urgency of the decision making response? Maybe this is a, uh, the four letter word F-E-A-R. Maybe fear creeps into this this equation that prevents action. And a lot of times we see in the Old Testament as well as in the New Testament, action speak louder than words. And maybe the fear of, of a commitment, maybe the fear of, okay, well, he's not here. I can't see him. Uh, he goes away and tells us it's good for us that he goes away. And this, which goes into the, the second reason, and that's trust. But I think going back to the first, we really have to accept the fact that we have an invitation to eternal life. And why not? I mean, we all, we all think, okay, well, I'm going to heaven, and that's great. Why don't we bring heaven back to earth? You know, that's what, what would be wrong with that. That's what Dallas Willard writes um, when he speaks about the kingdom of God as 
there's this, this tension between the kingdom of God being not yet and yet at the same time now. So most people look at what will be like to enter into the kingdom of God you know, after we die, when we cross the river, when we enter into that Revelation 4 picture of the kingdom of God. And Dallas Willard turns it on its head and says, but what would it be like to bring the kingdom of God now? Right. Jesus said, behold, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The right. kingdom of heaven is at hand in Mark 1, 14 and 15. Sure. And this is, this is an amazing passage because what we inevitably do. Maybe it's through apathy. Maybe it's through uh, a sense of non-urgency or uh, non-essential motivations is that we think that what God is offering through Jesus Christ, we we feel that he is peddling some kind of knickknack that it is something that is just added on or something more that we have to do or just to decide. And, and that really has no urgency. But the kingdom of God is set in this forever mood of urgency, of right now, of this is important. Jesus is not peddling something that is worthless. He is offering, he has bought and paid for something that is eternal, something that is transformational in our hearts and our lives. So a decision is important. It's imperative. And I think you're right as we lean into the next response that fear pushes back on a lot of us and that our second response, according to Manning, is that there is this this sense of, of trust, that Jesus demands trust, that we do not rely on our own resume, that there's a sense of something else that needs to control us, to guide us, to become that foundation. Tommy, I was telling you beforehand, this is the one that speaks to me the most, at least right now. Trust is so very hard, isn't it? It is. And in every walk of life, trust is, is absolutely paramount. In this, and I, I don't know which a gospel it's in, but it's coming to me, all you who are labor and are heavy burden. And Handel, one of his um, courses is... In the Messiah? In the Messiah is, come unto me. My burdens is light. Come unto me. So the trust factor is, as you say, is imperative. We have to place our trust in him, and we have to let the self go. I think if we can deal with the ego of the self and replace that, as, as he said in John 15, if you see me, you see God. God is in me, and if you're in me, you're with God. So there again, it comes back to the acceptance we, the initiative, the invitation, now we accept it, we act. We don't procrastinate. The reason that this becomes so real to me is because when you trust completely, fully, at least to our own capabilities in God, that does not mean that you no longer have anxiety, that you no longer have doubt. I can't tell you how many times that I will walk up to a pulpit to preach 
and I am anxious. I am even in the process of, of living into a Friday night when I'm putting my final touches on my sermon Saturday, wondering and anxious and second guessing everything in that, that I, in, in the same feelings as I walk up there. I mean, God, I'm doing your work. This is what you have called me to do. I trust you. Yes. But do I really trust you? Because if I trusted you more, wouldn't the anxiety go away? Would I not be uh, second guessing all the time? And then someone told me once they said, John, you don't want that anxiety or that reverent fear to go away because once that goes away, you will start trusting in yourself. Exactly. You will start putting all of your faith and your trust in confidence in what you are able to do. There's a, a great book. It's an old book. It's by uh, John Ortberg. It is called Overcoming Your Shadow Missions. Have you ever read that book? I have. It's a great book. It I is. highly recommend it. It, it goes is. through the book of Esther and right. four or five different responses, perspectives of uh, the book of Esther. Wonderful book. It Wonderful is. book. He gets to the end of that book and he said, I heard Dallas Willard talk before about the necessity of letting go of the outcomes because that's really what fear germinates inside of us. We want to control the outcome, right? And right. He, uh, he says, I heard Dallas Willard before talk about the necessity of letting go of the outcomes. As leaders, we need to be aware of outcomes. We need to take them seriously and we need to learn from outcomes but we should not carry the burden of them. You see, outcomes are in God's hands, he continues. We were not meant to carry them. We must not allow outcomes to crush us. But hearing Dallas talk about letting go of outcomes is one thing. But to watch him give a talk and then just let it go, it was remarkable. And he recounts how the uh, of how he lets go when he preaches. He told John Artberg, he says, after I'm done preaching, I imagine that through the service, through the sermon, I was holding a helium balloon. And then as soon as I was done, I let it go because the outcome is no longer mine. And the anxiety and the fear and this confidence of of wanting to be in control of the outcome, I think speaks a lot to me, and I'm being transparent and vulnerable, speaks to my desire for the outcome, my desire for what I imagined. And I just need to trust. I just need to have confidence that, uh, that God is in control. You see, this is not unexpected. You quoted a verse where Jesus says, come to me, all you who are heavy burdened and labor. Jesus assumed that we would grow weary. Jesus assumed that we would be disheartened or discouraged along the way. So trusting in the mercy, trusting in what God has done, it's not about the feelings that we have. It's about seeing beyond those feelings and embracing what God is doing in the kingdom and trusting that one lifetime is too short to see that all that God is doing. Yes. And, and John, one of the things that I think we all have to resolve is letting the past go. We can certainly learn from the past, but when we wallow 
in the past with guilt, remorse, and shame over real or sometimes imagined sins, we are basically thinking, thank you, God, but we don't need your gift of grace. Right. When we hold on to the past, uh, that that is a really, and when we're holding on to ourselves and not taking the initiative to the invitation that's given to us, the self is a major component of unhealthy guilt, leading to depression and anxiety. And uh, there's a there's a beautiful hymn that we sang yesterday at this funeral. And one of the verses said, My sins have been nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Just remember, all your sins, past, present, and future, have been nailed to the cross. You bear them no more. Praise God. Praise God. We go through life wanting assurances that God is moving, that God is doing this or that, that he has forgiven us. We want assurances that our faithfulness and our actions and our words and our good deeds and the things that we do for the kingdom are recognized. But when all we want are assurances, that's bogus trust. Right. You see, what he says is this craving, Manning says, this craving for reassurances, it stifles trust. When craving for reassurances is stifled, trust happens. I think we have to get into the habit of saying, what can he do? Yes, yes, absolutely. Forgive yourself, accept yourself because you are accepted. If Jesus accepts us just like we are, why can't we accept ourselves and revel in the fact that what can he do? Well, there's there's no measure to what he can do because he can do the impossible. And Jesus says it is humanly impossible, but with God, everything is possible. And I think that's why we need to really, going back to the celebrations of discipline, study Scripture and let those little little snippets of let go and let God permeate our mind constantly. I think he puts a nice bow on this. He says, you will trust God only as much as you love him, and you will love him to the extent you have touched him, or rather, that he has touched you. Yes. <laughs> he says something else, too. He says, remember, a sad Christian is a phony Christian. And a guilty Christian is no Christian at all. Just think about that. A sad Christian is a phony Christian. And a guilty Christian is no Christian at all. The third response after a call for a decision there is a need for confidence and trust in God. The third response to the cross of Christ is characterized by gratitude. This is a little bit of a shorter section, but quite simply, he writes, our deep gratitude to Jesus Christ is manifested in neither in being chaste or honest or sober or respectable, nor is it manifested in church-going, Bible-toting, and psalm-singing but in our deep and delicate respect for one another. To evangelize a person is just to say to him or her, you too are loved by God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And to get them to a place where they can see 
that their only response is gratitude. The last part of this chapter on page 125, I'd like to read this. Gracias, Señor, for your lips twisted in love to accommodate my sinful self, for judging me not by my shabby good deeds, but by your love that is your gift, for your unbearable forgiveness and infinite patience with me, for other people who have greater gifts than mine, and for the honesty to acknowledge that I am a ragmuffin. When the final curtain falls and you summon me home, may my last whisper words on earth be the wholehearted cry, Thank you, Lord. Gracias, Senor. Our prayer for you who are listening today is that if you have not had an opportunity to make a response to the cross in your own life, he has taken away the guilt, he has taken away the shame, and he is no longer your enemy, but your friend. May God hold you in the palm of his hand and remind you that you are his and he is yours. Amen.